Welcome to the Ross Republic podcast. My name is Adrian Klee. I'm partner at Ross Republic. I'm joined by two amazing guests today. Um, Chia, who is principal at Saison Capital. How are you doing, Chia? Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. And the second guest is Akash, who is an investor at Documentum Fintech. How are you doing, Akash? Good, Adrian. Thanks for having me as well. Uh, just as a first uh, quick introduction, um, Chia is principal at Saison Capital, a leading fintech-focused venture capital fund covering investments across India, Southeast Asia and the US. Um, he was also previously co-founder of um, fintech angel operators, and he was the fifth employee for Antler, um, a leading global pre-team venture builder and helped Rocket Internet to build out an e-commerce company in Pakistan and Sri Lanka, which was subsequently acquired by Alibaba. Akash is uh, working as investor at Augmentum Fintech, which is the first publicly traded fintech fund and fintech focused VC in the UK. Prior to joining Augmentum, Akash worked at the Cast Entrepreneurship Fund Barclays Ventures, where his industry interest was peaked and Deloitte. As a fun fact, Sifted named Akash one of the 20 European tech leaders you should follow on Clubhouse. While that was still a thing, I guess. So Akash, how's it going? Are you still running Clubhouse sessions? No, no, no. Uh, you you would have heard about it. I would have been spamming your your by now if that were the case <laughs> all right interesting and um so chia and akash have recently released a blog post about concentration risk in b2b fintech infrastructure which we will cover in this episode i found that very very interesting um as a quick warm-up question chia you wrote one year ago an article um, as an introduction to embedded finance uh, concluding that the opportunities in embedded finance particularly in asia are extremely exciting as foundational levels of digitalization take place across traditional industries, um, allowing layers of tech-driven financial services to be built on top of traditionally non-fintech companies. So now, one year later, um, embedded finance is still going very strong. There's heavy momentum in B2B fintech infrastructure. How has this whole embedded finance segment evolved in your view? Is it something that's here to stay and will really change how financial services are delivered? Fully agree. Um, and Akash, since we will talk about concentration risk in B2B fintech infrastructure, are there some favorite B2B or let's say um, fintech infrastructure companies that you um, are looking at right now or that you have seen recently? Yeah, thanks, Adrian. Uh, there's a few segments I, I think I'd like to call out. So one would be card issuing, and we, spoke, we speak about Marchetta at length in the article. Yep. And, um, you know, we, we go into the mechanics of how their customer concentration risk with Square is actually um, overstated due to the key reasons of there being uh, it, it not just being simple turnkey infrastructure, but there's actually a lot of customization that goes into serving a whale customer like Square uh, regulation and compliance. And it's interesting to see a version 2.0 emerge in Lithic 
which yep. uh, takes that model but iterates on it with making it be sponsor bank agnostic, and uh, that allows the end customer, the customer in this case Square or uh, any other customer that that Marquetta would target for for card issuing, uh, be have have more flexibility in the sponsored banks that they choose. So this trend of the first iteration of infrastructure plays being iterated upon uh, with new with new uh, new models is is also uh, visible in banking as a service. Solaris Bank in Europe was the first um, real uh, banking as a service provider for and still continues to power lots of new fintechs that emerge Vivid money, of course, in Germany, you'll know Adrian, uh, as well as many others. But now there's 2.0 wave emerging in, in unit in the US and Packy McCormick has written a great piece on them. Bond as well, who have raised a lot of money in, in Europe, we have Swan, um, Weaver, uh, you know, our mutual friend Lars Markle uh, knows Weaver yeah. quite well. And then open banking, uh, Plaid with their initial screen scraping approach and eventually evolving into a API first approach has seen a lot of uh, successful um, uh, 2.0 players in Europe as well, like TrueLayer and Yapoli. Yeah. So there's different segments in which you could see a uh, 1.0 wave of infrastructure players and then a 2.0 wave uh, who've taken some of the key learnings and then iterated on on what they've observed. All right. You already mentioned a few companies that we will dive a little bit deeper in the course of the conversation. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. Just to set the scene a bit, um, this year European fintechs have raked in over 6 billion in funding already. And out of the 6 billion, 5 billion has, has gone to B2B fintechs um, across over 370 deals. So obviously, B2B fintech, especially banking as a service and infrastructure players are now um, on the radar of a lot of uh, VCs and fintech companies um, or, or fintech focused VCs. How did you um, come up with the idea of concentration risk or looking concentration risk in B2B? Uh, I think that one of the, the main things was really a conversation that Akash and I were having around different frameworks and different ways to think about B2B fintech and fraud. It's, it's, it's a space that uh, I'd been talking to Akash um, and we'd been exchanging notes for a while on. And I think that having looked at a few companies, we were also understanding some of the risk and in, involved in these business models and trying to push the way that we are thinking about this and really kind of stumble upon this topic, iterated on the argument for a bit um, before pushing, um, I think what we thought was uh, you know, a fairly interesting data back way of, of looking at this particular argument. Just to, just to add to that, Adrian, I think uh, both of us as in as on the side of investors, we've seen a lot of private businesses that we we've where we've judged concentration risk to be a, a key risk factor. And so I think this is a generally quite quite common in in the discourse in investment teams at different funds. And so it was interesting to just flip the narrative slightly or bring bring some more nuance to it. Absolutely. So concentration risk, I know in your article, I think you define it as over 10%. So if one customer uh, accounts for over 10% of your revenue, I found different varying um, definitions actually online. How do you look at that in, in B2B fintech? Is there um, 
Is there like, like a rule of thumb or is it always basically depending on the context? Uh, we we didn't actually use that definition. We didn't come up with that definition, I think, thankfully, because um, I think none of us are, are smart enough to, to try to redefine industry terms. Uh, yeah. uh, that's a joke. Obviously, it's it's a very context-dependent one. So we just took the one from the SEC um, and how they yeah. defined it, which was, you know, if it's above 10%, you need to flag that on your SEC filings. Um, and we use that as a rule of thumb. Obviously, in practice, it will differ. And as we found out in, in BB FinTech Infra, uh, it differs, uh, the revenue concentration risk that was generally higher than other business models. Yeah. And maybe, um, Akash, you can take this one. Um, conventional views on customer concentration risk is obviously that you should avoid it, that it's something that will basically um, uh, decrease your revenue generation. Um, how, how did you find, like, how what, could you maybe summarize quickly why any B2B fintech infrastructure player should avoid it or what, what conventional views say or the sentiment, mm. basically? Yeah, I, and I think the answer to this is generalizable across not just fintech infrastructure, but any any infrastructure uh, company that has concentration risk. I think the general sentiment is that um, if a large chunk of your revenue is coming from one customer, then obviously uh, they have bargaining power to to eventually negotiate better terms from them because they're aware of that. And then yep. uh, your margins can get compressed. That's one thing. And obviously then your future revenues are fairly volatile and very contingent on your retention of this either one customer or, or a selection of customers and uh you know investors kind of take take uh can can really take that with a with a um dose of skepticism when they see yep. numbers and projections where um any anything that's outside of your control exogenous variables that influence that customer's decision to terminate their relationship with you uh can can really damage your your top line and then obviously that trickles down all the way to the wider operations of the business so yeah, yeah i think infrastructure plays generally in fintech infra of course too so the general sentiment i think is usually quite quite uh, uh a risk risk uh risk one that, that this is a risk rather than a than a something to be lauded as we sort of say in the article yeah. uh because of the potential uh, churn problem problem it presents. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's also what I found in my quick research. So basically, most of the articles suggested that um, the more concentrated a customer base is, the more it allows a handful of customers to extract profit, profits away from the supplier firm. And that major uh, customer concentration is definitely negatively associated uh, with the supplier firm's ability, uh, so, sorry, the supplier firm's profitability. So um, that's the conventional view. But I understand, obviously, if you look at um, B2B fintech infrastructure players, the, you need to take it with a grain of salt um, because sometimes it can actually help you to scale along with these few big or handful of big customers that you've been over or that basically grow um, while you're still serving them. Now, you have basically illustrated a few B2B fintechs that have quite a high, high customer concentration. Um, you already mentioned Makita. Um, famously, Square accounts for over 70% of their revenue. Um, they, they basically um, will have maybe even a higher number after they acquired Afterpay, who is also a Makita customer. Um, so, so that obviously presents a high, high risk. Is there, is there anyone or any other company you'd like to mention based on the article that, you that you've written that um, people might take a look at as an interesting case of a fintech company that has high customer concentration? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think you mentioned a few. We also looked at, for example, a firm in the article, and we looked at um, the interaction between uh, different 
different industries. So for example, I think we did touch upon lending to the example of uh, Credit Karma. Um, yeah. While it's um, Credit Karma's lenders, for example, um, being susceptible to that risk. And um, yes, you're right. I think a lot of the examples we found out there was really around, I was really around the the card issuing space. We did find a lot also, obviously, in payments. Um, uh, anecdotally, I think we know quite a few numbers that we couldn't uh, publicize um, yeah. or, or, or quote publicly um, in the payment space. And so it does, it does show up uh, across the spectrum um, in different ways, as we tried to also illustrate in the in the table of, uh, of, of different companies per vertical. All right. And um, also to summarize your article, um, after you basically illustrated that the sentiment on uh, customer concentration is usually negative and there are quite a lot of um, B2B infrastructure players that actually have high customer concentration, you twist the story a little bit um, because some of these sentiments might be wrong if you look at the right metrics uh, or maybe look at it from a different angle. One of them is uh, stickiness. So um, you mentioned the article, revenue concentration should be seen as a positive feature, not a bug in B2B infra fintech infrastructure. Let's maybe elaborate a bit on the stickiness feature. And um, I know the team of Makita in, in, in the UK a little bit, and they always tell the story that, you know, when they launched the API, um, they got traction with some startups that then sub subsequently got quite big, like DoorDash um, and obviously Square, for example. So, so um, and they all like have now, I, I think the Square um, contract that Makita has goes, uh, ends in 2024. So it's, it seems to be a sticky customer right from the beginning. Um, let's maybe talk about the stickiness. What's, um, what's your view on that? Um, why is stickiness important? I can, uh, I can take that one, take a first dive at that. So ultimately, um, it's a, it's a corollary of the risk. So if the risk is that these customers churn, then obviously the mitigants are these factors which make it sticky. And in let's let's take Marquetta's case, uh, Square, DoorDash, some of the others that you mentioned, they they don't see any reason to build the compliance function and uh, the regulatory functions that come with uh, card issuing that Marquetta offers out of the box. Um, as far as that, there's a risk of them insourcing that or building that in-house. Ultimately, Marketa's service is so good, it abstracts away a lot of complexity. Um, it's often developed in a way where there's really good account management with each of these whale customers that um, it, would be a, it would be a massive uh, cost center for them to, for these customers to build these things in-house. And I think it's worth emphasizing and just like underlining the compliance and regulation uh, points because these are unique to fintech infra um, in that uh, the process of obtaining licenses and such that Marketa and others have done is is itself also fraught with lengthy, lengthy processes and applications. And so um, Square, DoorDash, um, even Peloton in a firm's case, these businesses are... Um, occupied with their main product offerings. And this is probably the last thing they want to worry about. Um, and we can just, it's very hard to overestimate how much, uh, how much that compliance workload and regulation, regulatory compliance workload entails. And so we, we argue that in FinTech infrastructure in particular, um, that uh, stickiness is particularly um, uh, enhanced because of the unique characteristics of financial services. 
fully agree. I mean, especially I guess in card issuing, uh, there's so much complexity um, that you need to be aware of. Like someone needs to manufacture a card, someone needs to ship it. Uh, you need a bin sponsor. Uh, you need a um, yeah, well, a, a bank basically behind it that has all the licenses or some license um, uh, providers and so on. So um, bringing that in-house is quite a lot of hassle. And if it's not really part of your core business, then I fully understand that stickiness in in, in especially these cases in the fintech um, segment is definitely there, and you can view that as a positive thing. Second one was growing with whales. Um, there are some interesting charts uh, also from Akita, how they have started, as I mentioned, like in the, when they first released the API and then have been gaining momentum together with their customers. But obviously you need to be able to scale um, together with them. Um, maybe a few words on, on, on growing with whales. So I think Akash has, has covered kind of that point tangentially, but uh, I think that maybe a couple of things to, to take note when we're growing with whales is Number one, understanding that the that as an investor, you know, if you're trying to capture the market, if you're trying to gain exposure to the market, you are really um, you, you've already accepted the fact that you're that you'd like, for example, exposure to the underlying kind of in, fintech industry, and the fact that whales would, by definition, grow faster than the industry is something actually to to appreciate rather than to avoid. I think one of the one of the kind of specific things that we were trying to answer, uh, which might have been non-obvious, is really from the investor's perspective on why, for example, as opposed to other industries, they really should not be looking for companies where the where the revenue is less lumpy and where they're really spread out in terms of kind of revenue concentration and really embracing the fact that, you know, um, uh, not only sh well, not only is this something that is not a, a bad thing, which is growing with whales, but um, something that you should actively look out for as opposed to in a hypothetical situation, if you're given kind of two choices um, where the other company um, has, for example, a, a more even spread of, 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 of customer segments. Um, and I think that's one of the main points that we're trying to, to really um, point out, which is the logical kind of um, fallacy um, from an investor standpoint with regards to wealth. Absolutely. And um, I think when Makita initially IPO'd, I think that was last year, right? Um, everyone was was definitely pointing at this super high, uh, you know, revenue concentration with Square. But I mean, ultimately they won uh, Google as a customer for Google Pay, um, which they're, which is using now Makita. So that was like the first, another major customer which showcased that if you have, a, if you have proven a market that you can do, you can really um, provide a scalable product, then, then, you know, it's, it's, it's sticky and so on. And you will win other whales as well. Um, they're also powering JP Morgan, uh, um, Uber and so on. So they are definitely already diversifying their, their client base. So it's, um, it's something to, um, yeah, just look at with a, or basically take with a grain of salt if you have initially high customer concentration. Um, then going a little bit forward, also in your article, you mentioned um, figuring out when customer concentration risk matters and when when it doesn't matter. So um, there are some some conditions that make customer concentration risk acceptable or not, like the, the boundary conditions, as you mentioned them. Uh, for example, operationally or regulatory complex segment. Um, let's maybe dive a little bit deeper into, into these um, positive factors that act basically um, make customer concentration risk not not as risky as it usually is seen uh, maybe yeah maybe i'll just like set the scene and then tia will definitely uh, add much more color but i guess one thing to to lead with is that the 
infrastructure providers that um, actually benefit a lot from concentration risk are the ones that have usage-based pricing. Um, and and that's that's key to being able to actually scale your your uh, scale in line with this customer if they are actually a whale customer. So in in Square's case, which um, obviously represents seventy percent of um, or did represent seventy percent of Marketa's revenue because they were growing very fast and not because other companies were growing very slowly. It's just it this is it's just thinking about it in a different way if. If you sign up a customer, let's take Axie Infinity now in the crypto world, where some there's just been some earth shattering numbers recorded there for that company, uh, Sky Mavis, and the investor or or the 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 suppliers to Sky Mavis, um, you know, on ramps and such and other other uh, infrastructure providers there, are not going to suddenly. Um, uh, scratch their heads thinking, why do we have such concentration risk if one of our customers is showing absolutely explosive growth? Um, it's it's something to be celebrated that one of their customers is growing so fast and that their own um, growth is is commensurate with that growth, that they're, uh, that they're able to continue scaling the margin that they're taking. Um, and so that 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 is 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 really fundamental uh, to actually accruing any value or incurring the right the right amount of value from um, serving whale customers um, that begin to to present concentration risk, and then it's I guess I'm um, repeating an earlier point of the operational complexity and the um, compliance in particular. I think the licenses, for example, they, that's not something that if you're starting to operate in multiple countries, um, you'd want to go through the process of doing in each of those countries when there's already an, a provider that. Um, accelerates that process or expedites it uh, from uh, from years to to even weeks. Uh, so I think those are the two points that we had lead with. And then I, I'm sure Chi has several points to add. So I, I think Akash hit the nail of the usage um, usage based pricing. I think the the main the main differentiator is really around stickiness. And I think a lot of the factors that we mentioned, including complexity, operational regulatory complexity is really a uh, input into stickiness. And so I think why the emphasis on stickiness is really that the the main key risk, I think, with with infra plays, especially early stage infra plays, is the fact that you be, you you have the potential to become a gateway infra uh, or, or gateway platform in which, you know, they use you, they go to market with you because you're easy, but, you know, at scale, you lose them. Right, and of course, at scale, uh, you, you're always going to have some type of competition, right? Um, we we see that with Maketa, for example, uh, and how some of their clients are kind of thinking of, of using Maketa in, in parallel with someone else, blah blah blah. Um, but the, the so the key question is not that uh, your clients might find alternatives or or that they 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 use you in parallel with another provider, but the key is really understanding how long you can stay with them, right? And how much value can be accrued to the platform while you stay with them. So st stickiness, um, the output of for stickiness is, is, is time that you spend with them. And the output of usage-based pricing is the number, the amount of value that accrues to the platform while you stay with them. So if you think about it in the X and Y axis, then that's the area on the graph and that's the value that you accrue. Um, and so, 
uh, usage-based pricing, there's always going to be a cap that's going to be driven by market um, demand. But how long they stay with you, uh, of course, function of how complex it is, function of what the product is, and, and how substitutional, substitutional you are. And you see that there are certain verticals, which we didn't want to point out specifically, but there are certain verticals where, um, well, I think Frank in, in the article talked about Credit Karma and specifically how Credit Karma was not worried about switching in and out their, their back-end lending providers really because of the fact that, you know, um, the leads were of a high quality, the Although there's complexity for for integrating lenders, it's not as complex, for example, than as as I would I would probably say payment processing, um, or any other kind of, of, of kind of vertical. And so that was, I think, an example of how that substitutional uh, effect would come into play uh, for certain types of of kind of infra plays as opposed to others. Okay, very interesting. Actually, one one point that I would like to mention as well, which you. Um point out as something um, to, to watch out for, which you call connectors versus processors. So infrastructure that, that connects players rather than processes operationally. And I see actually this happening in banking as a service, at least in Europe, um, and like the next wave of banking as a service players, contrary to Akashi mentioned Solaris Bank in the beginning, um, who's like, who, who has their own banking license and who basically is very vertically integrated with all they do. Um, the next wave of banking as a service players are more um, um, orchestration layers that connect KYC providers, connect uh, different types of banks uh, that obviously possess the banking uh, um, licenses, connect different types of manufacturers, um, credit assessment providers, and so on. So you think these type of connectors are not as sticky as processors, right? So that's um, that's something to be wary of. But I, I see it definitely as a trend happening that um, I, can, I guess there are some companies that wouldn't even bring that in-house because it, 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 it takes, or it is quite complex if you want, if you want to orchestrate all of these different providers. And especially if you're, if you're going beyond, let's say, just card issuing or just uh, taking on or processing payments. Um, how do you see that as a, as a um, you know, evolving market in BAS that is more a connector than a processor? Yeah, so I think these are relative. Uh, I definitely would never say that connectors would not have value. I think what you, what you see is a, is, a, is a couple of nuances. Firstly, that, that if you are, for example, in the flow of money, if you are helping to process money, you're, you're relatively sticky. Um, stickier, and that means that you know it's harder to rip you out. Uh, it's easier for you to to, to, to gain revenue through take rates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there are, for example, as you mentioned, a whole bunch of, of different connectors out there. I think you know, um, you know, payroll, payroll data, um, identity management, trans bank transaction records, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a lot of new ones, right? I think obviously, Play has. Hit. Has created a huge outcome for themselves and really paved the way to um, to allow people to understand the potential in the space. Um, I think the the nuance here is you know connecting obviously will by definition have a kind of a lower integration cycle and and the whole point of aggregation is that it's possible it's easier to do obviously play for example. Uh, I think if you think in the context of, for example, played versus truly or played versus think, like who has an advantage? And I think the the investors from behind truly and, and think and the Apple and et cetera will happily say, yes, there's obviously an opportunity to catch up because, you know, it's aggregation. We can aggregate. We just need time and money. 
right? Um, as opposed to kind of going deeper into, into the processing side. And we, we have seen obviously multiple kind of um, aggregation plays uh, realize that, hey, they need to get into the flow of money. Um, that's where we can we can capture a lot of value. So I think that's where you see the trend, uh, the, 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 the transition. Um, have also had plenty of conversations with aggregation plays who are thinking through, you know, how can we go beyond an aggregation play, go actually deeper into the stack. And the first thing they think about is like, how do I start processing um, transactions or, or create transactions, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I've seen as well. Like, um, I don't think there's any uh, open banking player out there that is not either going into analytics or, or processing right now. So, um, you know, validated services, I would say, around um, their core API and um, um, offering that they have. Now, we talked a lot, a lot about um, card issuing, um, lending. Are there any other segments that, you've, that you have taken a closer look or want to take a closer look that you find interesting in terms of banking infrastructure just to round off the podcast? Yeah, I think I can... I can I can say that uh, there's a uh, a lot of interest in the in the in the in private markets maybe in in asset management capital markets infrastructure as well uh, where you're serving by definition you know big um, enterprises um, who can represent a big chunk of your revenue and that's also of course there's some nuance here but that's um, also typically fraught with lengthy sales cycles and and there's a uh there's a degree of of exclusivity of course when you sign some of these relationships often for many years um you can look at maybe let's let's take the example of core banking info like mambo or thought machine in europe i think mambo and thought machine are obviously targeting uh incumbent legacy traditional banks and often completely transforming their core infra and that is in itself a, a lengthy overhaul, and um, and often these can be up to ten-year relationships that are being built, and perhaps even longer. Um, so I think those are also good examples of where the concentration is can be overstated. Uh, so I think you know asset management, capital markets, core banking infrastructure; these are really interesting, probably further areas of, of study for any any readers or listeners, readers of the article or listeners of the podcast. Fully agree. Um, Chia, since you wrote the article last year, um, are there any use cases also in Southeast Asia that you would like to mention that, that you found interesting? Is there anything that has happened recently? I think definitely we're, we're kind of still building out the embedded finance kind of place. So the, the MFIN kind of 1.0 plays are, uh, are ones that we see, you know, really your, your identity management plays, your lending um, as service plays, a bunch of kind of payment integrators um, have popped up, which have done quite well. Um, so I think that that space in general um, for Asia uh, is something that, that we're pretty excited by. Um, I think I gave a, a presentation um, in, uh, this week in FinTech, and I think I was pointing out, you know, the very sizable market size difference between um, payments, insurance versus lending in emerging markets and how lending fundamentally and uh, for what it's worth, it's, it's still the kind of the main monetization opportunity. Um, maybe I'll add a couple of other opportunities that, that we've looked at um, in the course of this article in general, which is really around uh, the brokerage uh, space, the insurance infrastructure space. I think these are some of the spaces that, that we looked at. Uh, we didn't talk about them really because the data that we had was not public. Um, so we couldn't really talk about that. But um, those are definitely a couple of areas that, that, that have popped up. Um, payroll APIs, another one that, that it's very fascinating to look at from this perspective. 
Absolutely. So thanks a lot from my side to, that you took the time on a Saturday actually to, to record this podcast, Akash and Chia. Um, where can any, like if there are um, fintech infrastructure players out there that would like to get in touch with you guys, how can they reach you? Akash, maybe first. Uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn. You can also follow me on Twitter for some rather inactive posts, but hopefully signal, signal to noise ratio is good. That's just Akash Pajwa 96. All right, we will put the links in the show in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Find me on uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter. Um, I'm a. I, I bought. I just bought my first uh, NFT. Uh, so if you see a monkey on Twitter, just follow that. <laughs> Great. All right. So thanks a lot for taking the time and speak soon. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks. <laughs>